what is possible with a steadfast and bold vision. Welcome. Welcome to SAFE. A red brick and sandstone building looms large on Calgary's North Hill, complete with twin towers, gothic arches, and gargoyles. They've stood watch over the city for a hundred years now. This is Heritage Hall, the heart of the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, known as SAIT. And we're celebrating the lessons of the past 100 years since students first walked through its doors. 100 years of innovation, pushing boundaries and leading by example. 100 years of getting SAIT students up to speed for a rapidly changing new world. Join us and learn from the stories whispered from these walls. Celebrating 100 years of Heritage Hall. What lessons would we learn if only these halls could talk? If there was one universal sound, something that symbolized the importance of survival, the moment the skies went black each night, it was only a matter of minutes until this eerie reminder was projected across the great cities of the world. Thankfully, here in Canada, the reverberations we were adapting to were the synced echo of boots on the ground, the swish of shuffling army fatigues, and the sound of pilots training above. During World War II, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan took over the Provincial Institute of Technology and Art to train wireless air gunners, including airmen from Australia, New Zealand, and Great Britain. And seeing soldiers on campus may have not been the startling sight one might think. After all, Saint had already housed and trained soldiers returning from World War I. It's all part of our history, knowing within these walls, heroes were trained to a part of saving the world's future. World War II began in September 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland, bringing France, Britain and her Commonwealth nations into the conflict. Once Britain entered the war, decisive action was required and Canada rapidly galvanised resources. On June 30th, 1940, the federal government announced that it would take over the Institute buildings and grounds to be converted into the number two wireless training school for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Can you imagine, from our perspective, the students that were taking classes in the main buildings at the Institute, all the men's programs, they were unceremoniously bumped from the castle on the hill to under the grandstands of the Calgary Exhibition Grounds in under a week. It was cramped and walls made of quarter-inch plywood were put up to divide the classrooms. The welders, the machine shops, the builders. At times, it was so loud in there from the shop noises that lectures were impossible to hear. And cold. The boys did complain about their new space, and a fair number of them, and instructors too, took their technical know-how and went straight into the military to join the fight. Construction began immediately on the Institute grounds, building what would become a total of 26 wooden barracks and service buildings, including a hospital, to serve the wartime Air Force needs. The permanent Institute's main building, now known as Heritage Hall, was used as the main wireless training classrooms. 
Do you want to know what we were training for? Before I talk about what went on in those training buildings, I should probably tell you what the job was, what our purpose was. Picture this. You're in a Lancaster bomber that's crippled, gliding towards the choppy waters of the English Channel. Inside the plane, you have crew members bracing themselves, preparing against the shock of contact. All but one man, that man, is bent over his wireless key, tapping out the last of a series of numbers that will bring a rescue plane or crash boat speeding to the crew's dinghy. For one wind-screaming moment, the lives of eight men rest with that key. And in that moment, the wireless operator calls upon the months of training that is necessary to enable him to send a detailed SOS coolly, quickly, and accurately. That training? That's what we were doing in the halls of Number 2 Wireless School in Calgary, Alberta. The first 177 wireless operator trainees arrived at Number 2 Wireless School on September the 16th, 1940. The majority of these Canadians completed training in UK and were absorbed into the RAF bomber squadrons, but it wasn't all Canadians taking these courses. In total, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan would train 9,607 Australians and 7,002 New Zealand students in Canada during World War II, with a large majority of wireless air gunnery training taking place at Number 2 Wireless School. Training, training, training. Like I explained, it's memory and training that will save our crews when the going gets rough. What most people don't understand is that learning Morse code is like learning how to play music. It just can't be crammed overnight. Most of us trainees are able to do about six words a minute when we got here. By the time we leave, we have to be able to do 20 words a minute or better in our classrooms at the number two. We trained for hours in rooms that were equipped with rows of benches and tables. On each table, you'd have your Morse key and you'd wear your earphones. Row after row of us just listening and deciphering the patterns streaming into our ears. Each classroom could have up to seven different speeds of Morse from the control room. That way, instructors can give instruction to seven different sections of pupils, all in the same class at the same time. Once you get up to 15 words per minute, you graduate to a classroom with stations set up in it. There's a poster in the hall. It says it all. Live and learn is the old adage. Learn and live, that's the new adage. In another part of the building, there's a radio lab where we get to know our equipment inside and out so we can patch it up on the fly. For early trainees, that was it. That's all the training those first airmen had before they were shipped out to England to finish training with the RAF. For those of us later in the war, our last couple of weeks are spent at Shepherd Airport receiving instructions in planes fitted with wireless equipment. We called them flying classrooms. It wasn't all gloom and doom and no fun. Actually, did you know that when the airmen paraded in front of their commanding officer, they were led by a tiny little horse named Midge? No word of a lie, I heard a trainee from Nova Scotia won a Shetland pony in the raffle. Well, he couldn't afford to send the pony home, so he somehow talked the Air Force into keeping it at the number two wireless school as a mascot. And that little midge led every graduation parade after. And sure, in Calgary there was rationing. We started with meatless Tuesdays. And when things got tight, included meatless Fridays at all restaurants. But still, we did have some fun. 
In the spring of 42, the number two wireless school was given the honor of leading the world-famous Calgary Stampede Parade. And there were dances and parties at the Palliser Hotel. The trainees used to call it the Paralyzer Hotel. At the 22nd Annual Institute Banquet, every girl student was paired with an RCAF airman, and 10 of the Institute's 15-member orchestra were women. Oh, and Calgary was still Calgary. One or two attempts were made to implement total blackouts, but it was just too hard to convince anyone that the Japanese or German bombers were near at hand. So that didn't work out so well. And the streetlights were just dimmed to save power instead. Royal Air Force aircrew suffered a casualty rate of 46% during World War II. Out of 125,000 aircrew members, over 55,000 would be killed on active operations, and three quarters of these young men have no known grave. When you look at a World War II class photo from Number Two Wireless School, know that half of these entry class young men never returned home. The Provincial Institute of Technology and Art, which would become known as SATE, was able to return to its North Hill campus in the fall of 1946. It resumed normal class instruction after six years in the cramped space under the grandstand at the exhibition grounds. Many new instructors were hired to teach the increasing enrollments, including ex-servicemen, some who didn't even have time to buy a new suit of civilian clothes before being pressed into teaching duties. At the end of World War II, the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs awarded educational training credits to returning veterans. These credits, which provided one month training for each month of military service, could be used by the veterans to continue their educational programs that had been interrupted by wartime service. The classes at the Institute were soon swelled by these student veterans and a new chapter began in Heritage Hall. Continue the journey through SAIT's historical past. Visit sate.ca forward slash alumni for more episodes.